welcome to Crime Talk BK. Uh, we're your hosts, Joanna Perpich and Megan Duffy. Hey there. Hi. Uh, Hi. Dispatches from Brooklyn from quarantine <laughs> continues. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you for your patience last week as we both took our needed week off. Oh my goodness. It was very relaxing. I got it was, to sleep in. It was very relaxing. Although Friday I moved all my furniture around. Well, this sounds exciting though. You said you repurposed your living room to be a very luxurious bedroom. Yes, and vice versa. So and my butt was sore for three days. But because um, <laughs> I'm old. And I don't exercise, but um, I like it. Now I wake up in the mornings in the sunshine and take my coffee yeah. in, be- in bed. That sounds very nice. It's lovely. Uh, our office doesn't have any windows and it gets all nice and dark. So uh, recently, because our bedroom gets maybe too much sunshine, because mm-hmm. um, we don't have blackout curtains. And so there's a part of me that's like, maybe we should just get like a day bed for the office. <laughs> we wake up at 7 a.m. We can relocate. <laughs> Sounds a little excessive. We'll just get uh, night out, blackout curtains. Well, in these approach. strange times, in these strange times, though, you could move your bedroom into the office. Oh, my. Our bed would, like, touch both walls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so so how how are you doing in um, your, your neck of the woods these I'm days? Okay. I'm okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm fine. Work was slow, and then it was busy, and then it was really busy, and then nothing. Uh, which I feel like that's kind of the going to be the natural progression of things for some time. We did have some furloughs this week, which was really hard to hear. And your company? Yeah, yeah. One of my uh, very close friends at the office, and um pay cuts came around and all that stuff. So there was a lot of maths going on in my house to make sure that I could deal with pay cuts for the next, what I project to be 18 months. Yeah. No, it's fine. Like I'll be, I'll be okay. I just had to, I had to do one small thing to pay off a credit card. And then I was like, Oh, well I should have done that. Like, you know, five years ago anyway, but here we Mm -hmm. are. Mama will be fine. Yeah. My job's about to end, and uh, I was going to take a month or two off and see where we're at. Uh, I am hoping that the um, economy, that uh, at least, like, television will have bounced back enough by then that, uh, like, a lot of the productions that are currently on hold will be back in action. I did work for one show that does not rely very heavily on like on the ground shoots. So I'm hoping that maybe they will hire me. <laughs> um, but yeah, we are living in weird times and it's, we'll see how things go. So um, any of our listeners out there who are, who are struggling with unemployment and feeling down in the dumps, your self-worth is not measured about whether or not you have a job. That's important for people to hear. No, if you want to be uh, lazy and on the couch for a week, then just fucking be lazy on the couch for a week. This is not the time to worry about productivity and self-worth necessarily. It's more about self-care. Have you seen all those um, Facebook posts about people being like, I'm working on my so-and-so. And And I'm like, congratulations. I'm glad you're starting your own Fortune 500 company in these trying times. But I am going to be a slug. 
I mean, moving the furniture around by yourself, which is a queen size bed and a full size couch was a feat in its own right. And I felt like a fucking superwoman when I was done. So everybody can go fuck themselves. I was lazy for the next 10 days. (laughs) You deserve it. I think so, too. So I ordered box wine. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yes. You're amazing. I look up to you. Oh, don't. (laughs) Kind of a disaster. (laughs) But I love you. This actually is the highlight of my week, generally speaking. But it was nice to take last week off. Yeah. So why don't we get to Jonestown? This is our subject for the day. Um, And I think that most of our listeners probably have passing familiarity with Jonestown, especially with uh, the notorious quote, drink the Kool-Aid. Yes, it does seem to be some sort of um, flippant vernacular in pop culture now because of this whole incident. I know, but at the same time, I, like, kind of appreciate the, the snarkiness that, you know, something really terrible can happen and people are going to be able to, like, I don't know, bounce back sometimes with an eye roll. I take comfort in that. I, well, it happens all the time, right? It's, this is, it's not limited to this particular uh, incident. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to be on a cult kick. And also, I just wanted to say that I have started watching that TV show Waco. Oh, I haven't watched it yet. Did you like it? It's very good. Is it fictionalized? Like a docudrama? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer those, to be honest. Yes, um, I know. It keeps my attention better. But I actually think it's quite good. And it really makes me think of the, um, the Malheur uh, Wildlife Refuge debacle in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because there is uh, something called Ruby Ridge is kind of what started the uh, like the Waco fortress. Everybody gained all these guns um, because at the time um, the government was going after people who were a little bit more um, isolated and maybe conspiratorial. And uh, there's like a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of parallels between um, that type of feeling and what's going on today with some of the uh, like radical right gun movement folks. You mean those guys on the steps of the Michigan Capitol? Oh, right. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So um, maybe we can talk about that sometime on a future episode, but I want to wait until I'm done with the series first. Okay. I'm, I'm uh, all about it. We can do cults for the next four weeks. I don't care. It's fine. They're interesting. And, I mean, it's a good distraction. Um, as I'm sure our listeners have figured out by now, we have quit doing our potpourri episodes, and that's partially because the news is a little bit heartbreaking right now. And so we're looking for good old murders to distract us. Murders and other crimes that we don't have to look at the daily news at for. You know, like, it's just, if you have something, though, like, if you see an article that's not COVID-related that, you know, want to email it to us, that'd be great. That's fine. Megan at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. I'm that into it. Megan at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. I'm into it. But I'm not going searching for it. All right. So, Jim Jones. Mm-hmm. James Warren Jones uh, was a, quote, faith healer. Uh, but let's get real. He was a cult leader who killed 918 people on November 18, 1978, in the Jonestown Massacre. Uh, He basically ordered his uh, congregants to 
drink uh, cyanide-laced fake grape Kool-Aid. Yeah, he's a pretty pretty nasty guy when you really get down to the bottom line. Um, although I was like, surprised to hear that he actually did do some really cool things, if only he wasn't a um, megalomaniac. Yes. Uh, early on, he did some cool things, um, but, you know, he was also a junkie. Yeah. So, uh, Jim's early life uh, was, like so many of the people we cover, quite rough. He was born in Crete, Indiana, um, and again, he was born, uh, I don't have his birth date, but he was born in, what, like the 20s, the 30s? Um, they actually... Probably, uh, yeah, probably the 30s, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So uh, his family actually had to relocate during the Great Depression um, because of lack of opportunity, and I'm sure there's like issues with his family affording uh, where they were living in Crete. And uh, so he moved to what sounds like to be a pretty small town, desperately poor. Uh, he li- he and his family lived in a shack with no plumbing. Ugh. And uh, yeah. Childhood friends, if you can call them friends, um, apparently he had a very hard time socializing with other children, recalled him as, quote, a really weird kid uh, who was obsessed with religion and death. And both of those things really (laughs) go throughout his life. Sounds like the Catholic Uh, Church, but okay. Yeah, I know. Memento Mori. (laughs) Uh, So he allegedly would hold funerals for small animals on his parents' property, and um, they say that he stabbed a cat to death so that he could have a funeral for it. Okay, that's a little Wednesday Adams-ish, but yeah. (laughs) Uh, I guess I couldn't find enough roadkill. Yeah, I guess it would be Pugsley at this point, but that's a little... I mean, you know, kids hold funerals for their pets, you know? Killing the cat to serve your own motivations is a, a little step over the line, I think. Just a hair. Sure. Just a hair. Yeah, just a hair. <laughs> and uh, also, from the get-go, he was, um, he was described as very smart, like um, an avid reader. Uh, but the people that he chose to study was an interesting mix. We have Stalin, Marx, Mao, Gandhi, and Hitler. How did Gandhi get in there? I mean, I think that he was, he was one, he was interested in religion, and two, he was interested in power, you know? And I mean, like, um, we really revere Gandhi, but Gandhi was very good at mobilizing people, you know? And so I think that maybe from his perspective, you have this like great leader who was able to enact social change, which was certainly something that Jim Jones was interested in. I mean, you read that list and you get a sourier taste and you're now seeing Stalin and Hitler on it. Right. You know, but I mean, I think that's just how his brain worked is, is that he wanted to be a powerful man. And so he read other, the works of other powerful men. Yeah. So not unheard of. Oh, but anyway. If our president actually could read, I think he would read those two. But uh, one person of note is is that he became very enamored with Karl Marx and the idea of communism. All right, so setting that aside, in 1949, um, Jim married nurse Marceline Baldwin. 
and um, they would go on to have a whole brood of children. Um, in his family, there were um, like several who were adopted, um, one or two biological kids, but like Jim was very about caring for, for, for just everybody. And that was something that was very important to him. And it's just kind of like interesting because as we go through his story, there is like this weird balance where he was almost a really great guy. And then the whole occult thing took over. And so I think that Jim's um, activism um, really begins as a young adult. He was in his early 20s where he started um, going to Communist Party USA meetings. Now, this is during the time of like the Red Scare. We have McCarthyism. You know, like it was dangerous, frankly, to be a communist in the United States at this time. And his poor mother also went to a few pro-communist events with him. And she, um, her work found out, so she was being harassed by her coworkers. The FBI began targeting her. This is certainly nothing new for people who were in the communist movement. Um, but in a way, it also sort of radicalized Jim yeah. as if he weren't before. Yeah, right. It sort of solidified his radical ideas and lifestyles. At the same time, yeah, because he was so uh, Rainbow Bridge kind of guy, right? He was sort of, not Rainbow Bridge, but like uh, a unified rainbow community with Latinos mm -hmm. and black people and Asians and whites could all live in harmony and, and whatever. And which, you know, for the time was very inspiring. And I, uh, yeah. So I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was just like this big hippie, but then his mom starts getting targeted a bit by the FBI and Jim Jones is basically just like, fuck this. Mm -hmm. And so his next logical step was to infiltrate religion and so I think that um, maybe what he saw was this overlap between socialism and Christianity, which, to be fair, I think that is there to a degree. You know, like you look at the Bible and so much of it is like, care for the people beneath you, you know. Um, but I think that he had um, a little bit of trolling in his heart. Mm -hmm. um, so he started to work um, towards becoming a Methodist pastor, but then he switched gears after attending a faith healing at a Seventh-day Baptist church. Um, Seventh-day Baptist churches are known for their kind of like tent revival style, and there's lots of... Um, are those the ones with the rattlesnakes? Yeah. Okay. So they get like very excited, and there's all these like tests of faith, and it's very physical... Mm -hmm. And um, very, um, like, intimate in a way. And I think that that really appealed to Jim Jones. And there's, like, a lot of power, you know. And mm -hmm. so I think that he was really impressed by the, um, perhaps, power of persuasion that these pastors might have had. And then he also, of course, noticed that churches bring in a lot of money. And there it is. There it is. <laughs> And that perhaps the best way for him to enact true social change in the United States was for him to get a church together that can fund his efforts. Jim Jones, oh my, you got to give this guy credit. He organizes a huge religious convention, and this is kind of the debut of his cult. Um, he introduces the Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, um, which is, um, I think, shortened to the People's Temple. Mm-hmm, yep. Correct? And uh, so he's the leader of this church. Like this convention, he had a few um, like headliner pastors so that people would attend it. 
but what it really was was um, a recruiting ground mm-hmm. um, for Jim Jones's beliefs. And um, so in case anyone's wondering if Jim Jones is not trying to start a cult and maybe actually believes in this, at the time, he was actually consulting other leaders of religious movements who could also be considered pretty cultish. And the advice that he was given was find an enemy um, to help unify the people under him. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, he had goals. <laughs> you know. Paranoid goals. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything to add for this part? or um, I was going to start talking about uh, his work in Indianapolis after this. No, go ahead with that, because my, mine actually starts when they had moved to California. Got it. That's mm-hmm. pretty interesting, too. All right. So, Jim Jones, he's based in Indianapolis with his wife. And um, this is actually, I think, the um, really bright spot in an otherwise short and dark life. Uh, he was working with the city to basically desegregate Indianapolis. And again, Jim Jones is very forward-thinking in terms of racial equality. Uh, So he helped integrate churches, restaurants, a telephone company. Um, Jim Jones actually put together a force that would kind of like go undercover and figure out which restaurants were refusing to serve black people. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was like very like aggressive in his um, desire to desegregate in a way that a lot of other people were not willing to be at the time. You know, like he was really willing to get into people's faces and just say like, no, this is wrong. This is the direction that the country is moving in and you need to accept it. And at one point he even wrote to the heads of the neo-Nazi movement telling them to knock it off because they were harassing black people in his town. Um, and one story that I quite liked uh, was, was that uh, Jim Jones at one point was hospitalized at, U- at Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. And uh, due to a mistake, he was put in the black ward. And um, so Jim Jones is put in the black ward, and it sounds as though maybe the conditions weren't as nice. I'm sure they weren't. And so Jim Jones starts, like, fixing it up. He's, like, helping um, the patients. He's changing bed sheets. He's helping them go to the bathroom, and he basically shamed the hospital into um, making a, um, to making the uh, racially diverse ward, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I really respect that part of him, that he wasn't just willing to, like, say that there should be desegregation, he was really on the front lines and practicing what he preached. Yeah, um, I mean, he had ulterior motives, but it was still good work on the front line of social injustice, yeah. which I'm a, that, you know, it's like, yeah. When when did he cross the line, I guess, is the big question, which we'll never actually well, know. I don't know. Will we know? Are you going to tell me? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to start, I'm going to um, just talk a little bit more about the People's Temple while it's in Indianapolis. Okay. Uh, so the key tenet to his preaching is racial integration. That is something that is like super important to him. And so he has that going on and <clears throat> it's making his church uh, very newsworthy, but maybe also a little bit controversial for the time. Uh, he, of course, is also preaching socialism. And he begins teaching his followers to fear the inevitable nuclear holocaust. And he Mm -hmm. says that the nuclear war will allow for, quote, Eden on Earth and for socialism to take over. 
And so from what I gather, his theory is basically you know, the whole world is going to go to hell and we, the survivors, can rebuild society in God's image. Sure, whatever. Um, but the racial component especially makes him a few en enemies in Indianapolis. And Jim Jones is very good at noticing when he is no longer welcome. Really? Yeah, I think so. I think he might have forgot that strategy later on, but yeah, okay. <laughs> so do you want to continue? Um, I think this is around the time that he decides that Indianapolis is not quite the right place for him. That is right. In fact, he was predicting a nuclear holocaust, uh, so he chose the Redwood Valley of California because it was apparently this place where the winds, it was hidden behind the mountains and the winds wouldn't hit it, so it was like when it was literally listed by the United States Government is one of the safest places for a nuclear fallout. So he chose that place. And he led, there's estimated anywhere from 80 to 140 members to the Redwood Valley. And he officially opened his church there. And among these uh, followers with Timothy, I think it's Stone, Tim Stone, who was uh, a deputy district attorney. Uh, so he was, he ended up being the church's counsel until the end days and that increased oh, god the knows they needed it oh lord girl they needed a whole team and that increased uh the people's temples credibility in the area right they came with their own lawyers okay that's what i look for in a church <laughs> legal advice <laughs> legal advisors right yep so also during this time jones starts deriding traditional Christianity as sort of like this flyaway religion and rejects the Bible as a uh, white men's justification to dominate women and enslave people of color. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a podcast that I was listening co called transmissions from Joestown and it's a lot of his just speeches. Mm -hmm. So um, if you want to listen to more on, uh, to clear that up, he goes on about fucking and like uh, to, and it, an inordinate degree he goes on about fucking in his church sermon. It's like, okay, doesn't seem right, but, you know, I am only yeah. raised Catholic. Um, but then again, it's kind of like he's doing this thing where he's right in some ways. Like, uh, Christianity is used oftentimes to persecute people, and that there is, like, this, like, white savior component and, like, women misogyny in the Bible. It's like... He's, like, so close to being a really cool guy, and then he just veers, like, off the road and into a tree. Yeah. One of these speeches I was listening to, he was he said that there's uh, – the Bible is, like, listening to four people's account of a car accident. No one actually ever tells the truth. <laughs> oh, God. And that is – I mean, that's 100% true in any situation. Four people see the same thing in four different perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's – so that is absolutely 100% oh, true. The Catholic in me is like crying at that quote. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, so you can see how these people that have sort of lived on the fringes of communities and, and this idea of racial equality and social justice are buying into this crap because that's part of his shtick, right? And so he, then he authored a booklet he would distribute at the temple called the letters of Kileth, pointing out the contradictions, absurdities, and atrocities in the Bible for people of the accident. 
but also saying that the Bible contained great truths, which, you know, I guess I'm not a reader of the Bible. And then he also preached about this thing called the, quote, divine principle equated with love and love equated with socialism. And the Bible contained beliefs about only uh, one sky god or a buzzard god who has no god at all. It's a very, it's a very strange thing. And I think this is where he started taking the drugs. I think. It's my theory. Well, why don't you talk a little bit more about his drug use? Because that's not something um, that I found too much about. Well, it was only found out later um, when you when you really started looking at his recordings and the autopsy report after the fact. But on site um, in Jonestown, they found, hang on for the list, they found Thorazine, sodium pentothal, which, as we all know in true crime world is truth serum chloral hydrate demerol uh and valium Mm -hmm. and a number of those things were found in his body at the time of his death at like severely toxic levels but when you listen to the recordings he's slurring his words he now has a pronounced lisp which he doesn't normally have when he starts out like he doesn't have these sort of you know when you're watching someone who's impaired you can clearly tell that they are uh mm-hmm. and also the constant he would start out wearing sunglasses all the time but when you're taking uppers and barbiturates and all those things you become sensitive to light so he's mm-hmm. there's a lot of that too so he was taking uh, like a mix of both um like uppers and suppressants yeah so he started out when he when when the temple got to like thousand like a thousand people in california he started taking uppers. It was it's called the Elvis cocktail, right? You take the uppers, so you can go on and on and on, and everybody else is exhausted, and it's four in the morning, and and people are still worshiping you and the and the whatever, and you're preaching, and then when you're done, you take some barbiturates and you call it a day, and you sleep for a couple of hours, and then you get up the next morning, and you take a handful of uppers again, and you continue. And he did this for, let's see, he started in the 60s, and the massacre was in 78. So he'd been doing this for a good 10 years. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I had That's that. not sustainable. I did it for four days in college during finals week. I'll admit it. It was the 90s. It's fine. Um, not, I, not- I, I must admit that um, there have been moments in my life where um, <laughs> I might have uh, overindulged Look, in the there- yo-yoing. It is effective, but it also, you turn into, like, this weird demon after a few days. Uh, well, now I just uh, partake in the legal substances of coffee and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I've been inside way too long. I've been inside way too long. So going back to Jim Jones and his cocktail o disaster. His, yeah, his drug habit. That's, I think that's where he got the... That's why I kind of went off on that tangent because he said the phrase buzzard god. <laughs> yeah, I saw something about sky god being sky- fake. And I'm like, that's not 
how yeah. I would describe a yeah. Christian. Like, I don't quite know where he got that from. I don't know. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. So they're in the Redwood Valley and he finds it necessary and he was probably right to get the church's seat into a more powerful urban area. So in 1970, the temple began holding services in San Francisco and Los Angeles. They established permanent facilities uh, in 1971 and 1972, respectively. So the temple called Redwood Valley, or otherwise known as Mother Church, um, moved down to Los Angeles. But San Francisco is really where most of the people's temple activity took place that we know of. That has been reported on. Um, the primary purpose was to recruit members. Uh, again, as to serve a way station for Temple's weekly bus trips across California for recruitment purposes. Very culty bus trips. Mm-hmm. They set permanent staff up in Los Angeles. Then they started to in- increase their attendance at the churches and the collection baskets. Lots of money coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Let's see. The Los Angeles facility ended up actually being larger than San Francisco. It was located at the corner of Alvarado and Hoover Streets, if you've ever been to Los Angeles. But it also provided an easy access to a large black membership from Watson Compton. Yeah. Nearly 3,000 people by the mid-70s. Yeah. And then with that... After that recruitment drive in Los Angeles, they moved the headquarters back to San Francisco. Um, and most of those 3,000 people from Los Angeles moved to San Francisco with him. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one more thing that San Francisco offered him that he was certainly lacking in Indianapolis. And I think was really only able for him to get at that specific city, which was political power. Oh, I was going to say sex, but yes, also political power. <laughs> I, don't think of, I don't think that way. No, I know, but I, I was, most of my deep dive happened between seven and noon today. So, <laughs> right on the brain. No, but he was, he was, uh, he had, uh, he was actually considered a, a, a mover and a shaker in the local political world, even particularly with Harvey Milk. So you're right. You're 100% right on that. I know. Harvey Milk would give speeches at, like, the People's Temple. But then also, like, Jim Jones helped elect a mayor of San Francisco, mm-hmm. which I thought was bananas. Yeah, the Black, um, Panthers I was... were, the Black Panthers were aligned with his church, even though they didn't belong necessarily. They supported it. So these, this is a very big uh, population of people that could bring social change. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also, like, they were like this voter base. Mm-hmm. And actually, First Lady Rosalind Carter met up with Jones on multiple occasions and um, actually uh, spoke with him at the grand opening of the San Francisco headquarters. Um, she was kind of, like, going around helping drum up support for um, Carter's election. And uh, when during that event, Jim Jones received a louder applause than she did. Uh. Well, I brought up sex because at, during the time that they were in San Francisco, too, he got picked up for hooking up with a gay dude. Because at the time, gay sex was illegal still. So he was arrested for that. Not that that's a big deal, necessarily, 
but considering who we're talking about, it sort of it's like a tiny red flag in the bouquet of red flags. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean he was definitely a predator. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know how much of his cult was sex based. Oh, uh, it was. He had sex with everybody, and he frowned on married people being married because he thought that it would detract from their worship uh, and their okay. membership and their do-gooding. Their so worship mar- of him? I, well, I mean, isn't him and the church one and the same? Isn't that how cult leaders yeah. actually work? Right. Mm-hmm. So married couples would join, and then he would say, no more sex for you. And then he would bang the wife, sometimes the husband. And a couple times he banged the husband in front of the congregation to show that the husband was gay, but he was the Jim Jones was the only true heterosexual on this earth. That's the thing. That's what he said. Yep. Okay. That's why I That's went there. Gross. <laughs> That's yeah. Yeah. People should not use other people's sexuality as a weapon against them. Anyway. Yeah, Jim Jones is just a horrible person. He's a um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually, like, as popular as Jim Jones was, both with the San Francisco political machine and even, like, with reporters, it's, people were starting to get a little bit suspicious of him. And the San Francisco Chronicle actually had a reporter named Marshall Kilduff who was working on an expose, and he got several um, ex-members of the People's Temple to talk on record about abuses that Jim Jones was conducting against the, the community. I actually read the article. It was eventually published in New West Magazine because the San Francisco Chronicle killed it for a variety of potentially suspicious reasons. Um, the reporter said that People's Temple has two sets of locked doors, guards patrolling the aisles during services and policies to prevent people from dropping by unannounced for services. So clearly, uh, Jim Jones felt the need um, for secrecy. And then two former members uh, told reporters that the members were expected to attend service multiple times a week, including some that lasted all night. And this almost reminds me a little bit of Nixium, where, you know, you would have those prolonged gatherings, you know, where mm-hmm. everyone, you're starting to get, like, sleep-deprived, you're, you're losing your, really, ability to think for yourself, and you're becoming a lot more malleable towards, um, I mean, I would call it mind control, and that uh, they would have these catharsis ceremonies where a member would basically, I always imagined it as, as them being, like, put in the front of the room or something, the member would be criticized and humiliated by um, everybody else. And then this would also include spanking or beating until unconscious. Well, that goes back into the sex, the humiliated sex assaults of men in front of the congregations, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And church leaders were instructed um, to kind of force, coerce certain members to write incriminating letters, um, making up information about, like, illegal activity. Mm-hmm. And... Um, let me see what else. Members were encouraged to hand over their money, their property. 
And uh, one of the ex-members who spoke to this reporter said that uh, it was so hard for them to leave because they didn't have any, they didn't have a house anymore. They didn't have their an income anymore. You know, like it was a very difficult decision. Like everything that you own and everything that you are is wrapped up in this cult. Yeah. You know? And so there was like so many um, strings attached to these people to make them stay. So I just have a side note. Uh, the San Francisco uh, Chronicle, right? Um, mm-hmm. They ran that four-part series. And apparently... Huh? New West Magazine ran it. Okay, well, in 72, the San Francisco Examiner and the Indianapolis Star also ran a four-part series on the same story. Mm -hmm. And Temple members picketed the Examiner, harassed the Examiner's editor, and threatened both papers with libel suits. So they canceled the series after the fourth installment out of a seven-part series. And then shortly after, Jones gave them a huge... Grant money. Of course. So that happened. Not suspicious at all. Nope. Not at all. Yay, First Amendment. What the fuck? Okay. So it seems like at this point, we have a cult. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people couldn't... Yeah, you said people couldn't leave, but also... There was a group of defectors. There was eight young people in 1983 known as the Gang of Eight. And they defected together uh, after a lot of... There were rumors that they were all talking about leaving. And, of course, they got turned in. Um, So they left in, like, the cover of darkness. And Jones employed multiple search parties, including one which scanned highways from a rented airplane. Yeah, oh my so God. Th- it's crazy, right? So these eight people drove three trucks loaded with firearms t- towards Canada. And because they feared taking firearms over the U.S.-Canada border, they traveled instead to the hills of Montana, where they wrote a long letter document their- documenting their complaints. Former Temple member Janie Mills wrote that Jones called 30 members to his home in a- and declared in the middle of night that in order to keep, quote, in order to keep our apostolic socialism, we should all kill ourselves and leave a note saying that because of harassment, a socialist group cannot exist at this time. Sure. And that's in San Francisco. Yeah. So, yeah. This is not even before they left to Guyana in 1977. <laughs> he claimed the Gang of Eight were like Trotskyites to, or Coca-Cola revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's also kind of when he started mapping out those white, quote, white nights, which is when he would practice the mass suicide rituals. Yeah. That's when it started. Before they even hit Guyana. It was a thing. Yeah. And I read that um, also with the white night rituals, uh, <sighs> he would also regularly kill them that the liquid that they're drinking was actually poisoned, even though it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all conditioning. I mean... Uh, yeah, it's grooming from day one, right? Mask grooming. Yeah. So, why don't we um, get to Jonestown? Let's get to Guyana, or... right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much out there, you guys. Like, there's Murderpedia, there's Rolling Stone, Wikipedia, podcasts, um... 
YouTube has a bunch of audio. That's where I got listened to all my shit. So, you know, I'm sorry we're jumping over it, but we only have an hour. So, in the summer of 1977, Jones and most of the thousand members of the People's Temple that were still into it moved to Guyana after an investigation into the church for tax evasion. Named the settlement after himself. And the ultimate intention was to create this sort of like agricultural utopia in the middle of the jungle, free of racism and, and you know, quasi-communist principles. Yeah. Without, you know, they also didn't like vaccinate or prepare for mass starvation and disease. But okay. Yeah, you can just move to a new country whenever with X number of your closest friends. It'll all work out. In the middle of the jungle, we may or may not have a clean water resource. We're not sure. It's fine. (laughs) God will provide. People who had left the organization prior to this move told authorities of brutal beatings, murders, and, and of the mass suicide plan, but no one believed them. Could you imagine? Can you imagine the government not believing you in the 70s? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now, too, but in the 70s. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, what is wrong with America? Anyway, that's another conversation. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that's another show. So, in spite of the uh, <laughs> many, 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 many shows... In spite of the tax evasion allegations, Jones was still actually widely respected for setting up a racially mixed church, which, you know, you can see sort of, you can see the greater good idea coming into people's head. Well, it's just tax evasion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. By a government that you're now probably finding illegitimate anyway. Yeah. You know. Particularly this group and other groups that were closely associated. So... Many of the People's Temple members believed that Guyana would be a paradise. Uh, Instead, many of the residents, including the children, ended up raising food and animals for the People's Temple's project. But the work was six days a week, from seven in the morning to six in the evening. So basically slave labor, children's slave labor, Uh, temperatures reaching over 100 degrees because it's basically at the equator. And all they got to eat were maybe rice and beans watered down while Jones, of course, lived like the king that he was. Eggs and goat and all kinds of wonderful things. Because he also had a refrigerator that no one else had, which is kind of a dick move. Uh, Also, in the meantime, medical problems like severe uh, dehydration, uh, brought which brought on diarrhea, which of course is a cyclical, really awful cyclical cycle. High fevers, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, the copious amount of drugs that were floating around the camp in order for him mm. to keep people there, keep people under control. So he'd either slip it into their food, or tell them it was something else, or forcibly inject them because they were objecting to things. So now we're in the middle of the fucking jungle. Mm-hmm. Great various, guy. Yeah, super sweet. Uh, various forms of punishment were issued out against members that considered to be disciplinary problems. Methods include imprisonment in a six by four by three plywood box and forcing children to spend night in the bottom of a well, sometimes upside mm-hmm. down. Children in the well, maybe upside down. 
Child abuse. Yeah. Um, members who attempted to run away were drugged to the point of incapacitation. Armed guards patrolled the compound to enforce obedience. And then also, if you were a family unit and you and your wife brought your children with you, your children were surrendered to communal care and were allowed to see their real parents for about 15 minutes a night. It's not very often. Mm-mm. Currently at this time, Jones's personal wealth was estimated at about $26 million. Yeah. That's a lot. Well, a lot yeah. Of stuff that other people have given him That's because all, they're in a cult. All, all that money that those people gave him to get down there, and then they get there, then he takes all their money and their passports too, so they can't leave. Right? Mm-hmm. They're being held yep. against it all. Even the local Guyanese police officers related stories about harsh beatings and torture. Oh, a torture hole, which is the well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was also reported that Jones terrified the children by making them believe that there was a monster living at the bottom of the well, which is also wonderful. So I'm going to throw you into the well. It's already miserable down there, but a monster is going to come and eat you in the middle of the night. Yeah. So it's not like Jonestown is a very pleasant place to be. Mm. And while all of this is going on, um, some of the ex-members, and this is like ex-members from San Francisco, not necessarily people who moved to Guyana because it was very hard for people to actually leave Jonestown. He had that pretty on lock. Yeah. And um, this group of ex-People's Temples members started this um, group of kind of like friends and family of um, like the Jonestown community. And they were trying to put political pressure on the U.S. government to investigate Jonestown uh, with the eye of trying to get people out. Yeah. Concerned concern friends and family, I think was it was called, something like that. Yeah. Yep. So this all really comes to a head in um, the fall of uh, 1978. Uh, Congressman Leo Ryan um, mm-hmm. had been leading like this uh, investigation of Jonestown. And um, I mean, like he like asked if he could go and visit and Jim Jones said yes. And so he brought like a small delegation. I mean, they were, quote, welcomed. I'm sure it was like really weird um, Jim Jones was very much not into it, but I think he was trying to put up a bit of a front, right? Yeah, they were actually met with angry temple members and armed guards at the airport, and they weren't actually um, initially invited into the camp. They had to stay in a cafe the first night because Jim was like, mm-hmm. go fuck yourself. Um, this is now also keep in mind that this is the point where Jim's addiction to dr- drugs, it like he is up 30 hours a day and like you can listen to it on these tapes. There's, there's like the thoughts aren't the synapses aren't connecting anymore, right? So, yes, he invited him. He thought he would just go away. Paranoia is running rampant in him, and he's putting that now on his followers. Also, keep in mind that a lot of these followers are now not wanting to fucking be there anymore. Mm-hmm. Like they know if they try to leave, they'll get beaten, killed, throw down the well, disappeared, whatever. So they're just trying to survive at this point. 
eventually, like, so the next, after they get there, Ryan and his, I think it was 18 people that he brought. It was, like, media and other people with him. They were brought into the camp, and there was, like, a brief reception and a, and a concert. Like, they made the kids, like, sing songs, I guess. Uh, yeah, which is really fucking creepy in and of itself. And then they were the group Ryan's group was given a tour by temple members who were carefully selected by Jones to accompany the group around the campus. Minders. <laughs> Minders. Some of these people though were really angry and they thought saw they saw the congressman's visit as sort of um trouble brought in from the outside and like why don't you just leave us the fuck alone? Well many were just like whatever, I don't give two shits. So that same night the group uh, I think there was five out of the 18 actually stayed in Jonestown and the rest of the group had, were told that they had to go outside and find their own accommodation. So the next morning is when shit got real cray, right? This is when it starts. Mm-hmm. To get so a bunch of members tried to leave that morning and that sort of started causing chaos in the camp. And then reporters related to Ryan's group, the concerned relatives arrived back at the gate and Jim Jones's wife, Marceline gave them another tour. And apparently there was like this argument outside this window of elderly women. And the journalists were accused of being racist and trying to invade the privacy of these elderly women, like elderly women, like they could barely leave their huts at this point. Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So Jim in his drug addled stupor woke up late that morning and um, he was angry that the Ryan crew wasn't even like who was there again. And he was starting to say that everybody's lying and that Ryan is lying, that his investigators are invasive and the, the media is going to lie. Does this sound familiar to anybody, by the way? Mm-hmm. So when Jim is having, like, Jones is having this, like, this uproar, two families step out and look at the Ryan group, and we're like, we want to come with you. We are defecting. Two families. Uh, the Parks family and the Bogue family, along with Christopher O'Neill and Harold Cordell. So that infuriates Jones even further, and um, there was a long negotiation later in the afternoon at the Pavilion during which Jones was upset by news that two more families wanted to defect on foot, not with Ryan group, but they like mm-hmm. went, they ran through the jungle on foot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, la, la, la. Okay. So Ryan and his group now are leaving the camp uh, and they're going back to the airstrip. I can't even call it an airport. Right. And, while he was getting like leaving the camp, he w- Ryan was assaulted by a guy with a knife, and Jim said later said he didn't order it, but it was clear to everybody that like come on, you, yeah, you ordered you ordered the assassination of a Dem- uh, United States senator. So, but Ryan survived and makes it back to the airstrip. There's a huge other kerfuffle in between there. So while they're at the airstrip. And all of these defectors and the 18 original people that are leaving, they're fired upon by assault rifles from the jungle. And Senator Ryan is killed on the airstrip 
along with a number of other people. I have their names. Like some reporters. A couple of reporters as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this at this point is just like a straight up attack. Um, the surviving members are just trying to, to yeah. just trying to get out of there. It's a full on assassination. So. Among the dead were Congressman Maya, news team members Brown, Robinson, and Harris, 40-year-old Jonestown defector Patricia Parks were killed, a few defectors. A couple got, like, all the bullets. One woman had five. A couple journalists survived, and that's how we know what actually happened. But another reason we know what happened is that the, one of the cameramen was actually shot dead, but his camera stepped for, kept rolling. So we ha- that's where... The, you can find the footage online of this whole yeah. thing. It's incredibly fucking frightening. They pulled themselves together without the help of the Guyanese state police until very late in the day. And they, the police took them to a cafe. Apparently the cafe is the place to stay. Yeah. It's really fucked up. So 45 minutes after the attack at the airstrip. The shooters arrived back in Jonestown and one eyewitness recalled them having the this sort of like dead ass stare of weary soldiers and Jim Jones called a meeting under the pavilion uh, for all the members and it was announced that it was another quote white knight which normally because they they've apparently gone through this so many times that perhaps some people believe that it wasn't going to be the real deal but when you listen to some of the audio on the transmissions from Jonestown people knew that the senator was dead and then that they knew there was no coming back from it and so the eeriness of these recordings is that you can hear people sobbing and crying and they people really knew that this was it and they people are arguing with him like, why can't we just go to Russia? Because there was this whole Russia connection thing at the time, too. Which Yeah, and then also, it's like something that you don't really think about, but there were gunmen there. Like, people, I mean, everyone's just like, oh, well, you know, like, they drank it. They were in the cold. They believed it. They did not. Mm-hmm. There were so many people at Jonestown who, at this point, just wanted to live. They did not want to be there anymore. There just wasn't any escape. And there's a person holding, like, an AK-47 to your head. Yeah. You know, telling you to drink this poison. That, but also he used that whole, like, CIA-sponsored mercenaries are in the jungle and they're going to come and kill our babies because the senator is dead. Yeah. Like, there's there's no escape from this at all. So that's where you hear, like, some people are just resigning to, okay, fine. But some people are, you know, you can hear it in the back. Some people are like, No. I should have my own agency still. I should have my own opinions. I should be able to make my own decisions still. And he's like, yes, you should. But no. Yeah. It's just so heartbreaking to listen to that audio. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the faint of heart. I listened to it. I'm kind of fucked up from the whole thing today. There, you know, so 900 people died. 918 people died. 304 were children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jim Jones didn't take the poison. Jim Jones, we're not sure, either shot himself or someone shot him. Yeah. Because he's a cowardly piece of shit. As they all are. Mm-hmm. As they all are. 
but he was found in his cabin, and there was a body uh, by of a woman by the name of Annie Moore that apparently she was holding the gun, and she was laying right in front of the door. But uh, yeah, he didn't want to drink the poison. He wanted to, because you know, cyanide is not a pleasant death. Yeah. It basically rips your inside out, and you vomit and bleed internally, and among and those are just the nice things I'm going to say about it. So after some time, though, most of the bodies were brought back to Dover Air Force Base. Most people were identified. The 403 that were not identified were all children. That's so sad. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're buried in a mass grave together with a big memorial over it. In Oakland. Yeah, I think so. Interestingly, the Temple's buildings in Los Angeles, Indianapolis, and Redwood Valley are still intact. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think on that note, we need to wrap up recording. Um, thank you so much for joining us for Crime Talk BK. We're here every Saturday from 11 a.m. to noon, and we hope that you're staying safe, staying sane. We'll talk to you later. Later days. Only at first. Living, you're looking at death. It only looks. To, living is much, much more difficult. Raising up every morning and not knowing what's going to be the nice bringing. It's much more difficult. It's much more difficult. Please, please, for God's sake, let's get on with it. We've lived, we've lived as no other people have lived and loved. We've had as much of this world as you're going to get. Let's just be done with it. Let's be done with the agony of it. It's honest, and I'm sure that they'll they'll pay for it. They'll, they'll pay for it. This is a revolutionary suicide. This is not a self-destructive suicide. So they'll pay for this. They brought this upon us, and they'll pay for that. I leave that destiny to them. I want to go. I want to see you go, though. I, they can take me and do with me whatever they want to do. I want to see you go. I don't want to see you go through this hell no more. No more, no more, no more.